Amen. Please be seated. This morning, there will be two passages that we look at. One I will read, and the second we will examine together in our time together. Uh, So the first passage I would like to read is Matthew 28, the first 10 verses. And then for the balance of our time, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15. Matthew 28 is one of the four accounts in the Gospels of the actual resurrection of Jesus in history. 1 Corinthians 15 is the Apostle Paul's explanation of the resurrection significance to your life and to mine. As you hopefully know and acknowledge, the church of Jesus Christ is founded upon a living Savior, not a dead martyr. The church of Jesus Christ is founded upon the living rock, who is the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy and expectation. The church of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Jewish church. And that's the reason our day of rest and worship is no longer Saturday, but is now Sunday. Resurrection Sunday is every week. The church of Jesus Christ is the one institution that will last into eternity. Teams are not eternal. Companies are not eternal. Countries are not eternal. Governments are not eternal. Even the biological family unit that we so treasure is not eternal. Only the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will last on into forever. We know all of this to be true because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and changed everything. It impacts everything. So let's together look at these two passages. I will read first the historical account of Jesus' rising again And then we'll consider Paul's explanation of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Hear God's word, Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What I have just read is the historical account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical event that impacts everything that exists, giving our lives genuine meaning and significance, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Great Heavenly Father, you sent your Son to pay for our sins on a brutal cross. You raised Jesus, our Savior, from the dead for our justification. In the end, the fact of your raising him proves he is our Savior, O Lord. Lord Jesus, you are the risen, reigning, caring, shepherding one. 
You have set us free from sin and death. You have given us hope. And hope in God is a certainty that yields great confidence. We thank you for this. Allow us no confidence in anything we have done or are doing. But once again, as we consider the way that the resurrection impacts everything, give us utter confidence in you. Holy Spirit, grant your people a holy boldness as we serve, as we serve a living King. Fill us so that we might celebrate your grace and make the name of Christ the risen King famous. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ever since the beginning of human history in its record, we can see hordes of people who we would label as extraordinary. In fact, there are dozens of lists from dozens of pontificators about who the most influential or important people who ever lived were. And those lists are varied in their order of things. But the same names come up over and over again, and you've heard them. They're names we think of as great or at least very influential, very important. And yes, religious leaders like Jesus appear, but so do Mohammed, Buddha, Confucius, Moses, David, King David, that is, Peter. All this will also have scientists in various orders, depending on who's making the list. Uh, you can see what's most important to the list maker, but you'll see scientists and inventors, uh, innovators appear all the time. Einstein, Newton, Darwin, Gutenberg, Galileo, Copernicus, Hubble, Hawking, others. Uh, lists have outright artists and, and uh, composers as well. You have Da Vinci on most lists, Michelangelo, Mozart, Beethoven, Ben Franklin, others, many mentioned. Lists will often have military leaders or conquerors like Alexander or Julius Caesar, Constantine, Napoleon. Even awful ones like Hitler will be in the most influential or most impacting human being list that you'll see most draw up. Lists will have leaders of countries. Uh, you even see Washington show up, Churchill, Reagan, others. Lists will have celebrities on them as well. Fred Astaire, John Wayne appears on an extraordinary amount of these lists. Elvis, even Michael Jackson finds his way into the top 100, which tells you a little bit about the lists that we draw up. And also, Oprah is on most contemporary lists for top 100 most important people. This will have the philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Hume, and others. A list that we might draw up in this crowd would probably have Augustine in it, Bernard in it, maybe John of Damascus who wrote one of the hymns we just sang. Certainly Luther and Calvin would find their way on. Knox, Edwards, Francis Schaeffer, I'm sure. And you know, I can understand and appreciate and actually enjoy the debate about numbers 2 through 100. It's, it's a great exercise to discuss the importance of people. And 2 through 100 should keep us busy until Jesus comes. But if the resurrection of Christ is true, there can be no debate about the most important, most impacting figure in the history of the world. It has to be Jesus Christ. Mohammed, Buddha, Galileo, Einstein, Da Vinci, Beethoven, Alexander, Napoleon, Washington, Reagan, Jackson, and Elvis, Socrates and Hume, Augustine and Schaefer, they all had at least two things in common. One, they were flawed broken sinners. And two, for all their considerable abilities, they could not and did not escape death. 
Tony, are you saying that if Muhammad rose again from the dead, would you consider Islam? Well, yeah, I'd have to, and you would too. But the fact is, he died on Monday, June 8th, 632 in Medina at the age of 63, and we all know it. Only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ has defeated death and is still alive. This is the church of the living Christ. It's not the dead church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the righteous, he died for our sins and rose again on the third day. And this resurrection is an historical event that impacts everything that exists. It gives our lives genuine meaning and significance, and it's all for the glory of God. Now, I, in our time together, want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have your Bible, take one from the pew uh, back in front of you. It's on page 961. You'll need to have this open to follow with me. Look on with your neighbor if need be. We have before us in 1 Corinthians 15 the most thorough treatment of the importance of the resurrection in the Bible. Now Paul, in every one of his letters, writes from a perspective of the resurrection and redemption being tied together. He does not see the gospel apart from Jesus rising again. He, he recognizes that Jesus rising from the dead is necessary for all his cross work to be in effect. For us to be reconciled to God, our Savior must be raised again, showing God's acceptance of the sacrifice for us, placing Jesus in his uh, king, kingly role. So Paul writes from this perspective, but in 1 Corinthians 15, he does something extraordinary as he unpacks the importance of the resurrection for us. And this is what we will do this morning, is see this unpack just a bit. Corinthians, it's a book written to a church much like our own in this day and age. Uh, many of the books were written to churches that began as Jewish churches and then uh, grew slowly but surely, maybe more settled. People in those churches would have a background with Jewish, uh, the Jewish faith and then see how Jesus fulfills it, and they would have a, a transfer that would be more natural than those in Corinth. In Corinth, it was an eclectic church. It was made up of people from all sorts of places in that part of the world, different worldviews, different religions and philosophies. Many ideas were competing in that place. In the church of Christ, when the gospel was brought, uh, burgeoned up quick. It was a, a fast and strong beginning, but like any church, uh, it struggled, and it, it struggled mightily because maybe it didn't have the moorings some of the other churches had, and, and things crept in, and they were beset with various challenges. Uh, they had theological problems. They had practical problems of how to live out Christianity in a very pluralistic society that said anything goes, and don't judge others for what they do. Sounds just like today. Well, it was that way in first century Corinth, the church to which Paul was writing. They had sin problems. They had all sorts of issues in the church that had to be addressed. Very difficult, messy situations, messy people just like us. And Paul is writing to encourage them and shore them up in the face of much adversity, mounting adversity for those who were believers at that time. Many of which would have said, why do I want to latch onto this thing? It's so narrow, it seems, or this Jesus. And, and if I embrace all of this stuff, emperor worship or whatever Rome says, I can avoid all sorts of problem. I won't face persecution. I won't face uh, social ostracizing. It'd just be easier for me if I didn't have to latch onto this thing, but I'm convinced by it. And they were struggling. And so Paul writes to convince them that they can be immovable. They can be steadfast and it's right in the Lord. And there's great benefit and great future awaits. And it will it will color your whole life when you see it right. 
So what does he use? What of all the great truths about God does Paul use to really encourage the Corinthians? By the Holy Spirit's inspiration, Paul in chapter 15 picks the very thing you and I need to hear today in our very temporal age. He picks the resurrection of Christ and shows how it impacts everything. Let's look at the passage together. The first 11 verses show us that Christ's resurrection is the anchor of the gospel. We can't think of the gospel being made right with God through Christ's sacrifice, having faith in Jesus and his work. We can't think of the gospel apart from the resurrection being connected. We believe in Christ, the risen Christ, not a figure, not just someone who represents salvation, but is salvation. Look at the first verses in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, this most profound chapter. Paul says, I, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So it would come to their minds, Christ, their substitute, which you received. The church started in Corinth receiving this gospel. In which you stand, so you believe it, you're committed to it. Verse 2, and by which you are being saved. It's still the same message, it's timeless. It will always be the message of how people are made right with God through the sacrifice of Christ, faith in it, in him. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Verse 3, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive. So now he's going to delineate for them the gospel. And it's of first importance. you got to get this. We'll discuss many things in the church, but nothing could be of first importance like what I'm about to say. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It was forecasted that the, the seed of the woman would come and do this work, forecasted in the scriptures. That he was buried, verse 4, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Just like God forecasted it would occur, Messiah came and he died for our sins and we believe it. It's been laid out for us in prophecy and expectation. And verse 5 says, and that he appeared to Cephas. So he's buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. He then appeared to more than 500 brothers. He's saying, listen, what I'm saying is not just something I dreamed up, and you may be in a pluralistic society that wants to throw out all these ideas into the market of ideas, but, but recognize that there are over 500 people that saw the risen Christ, the same one who was tore apart on the cross, and they saw him with their own eyes. In, in, in those days, this would be considered viral, 500. With, with no texting, guess what I saw, or emailing what I saw, or YouTube, look at this. 500 to see this is a big amount. And they pass it on and they pass it on. So big is the amount that no credible case has ever been made that it is a hoax. In fact, even government dignitaries will cite the reality of this risen Christ spoken of among the people. So over 500, Paul says, you may be in a church or in a culture that people aren't acknowledging it, but don't let it fool you. It's got all the evidence it needs to be history. Jesus rose. He went to Peter first. The 12 then, then to more than 500 people, most of which are still alive. Some are dead, he says. In other words, you could go check this with 500 people if you want to know it's true. Most of whom are still alive, verse 6, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born, to him, Paul, on the road to Damascus. He appeared to me. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God chose to reveal himself to me this way, the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. 
Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the anchor of the gospel. To be a Christian is to believe in the risen Christ. In these verses, we see, reference something else about the resurrection. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus raising again and our future resurrection. That's what the balance of this text will teach us about. And it's important. It's encouraging. It's helpful to you now. But don't lose that Paul repeatedly will tie the resurrection event of Jesus with your resurrection in Christ now. Meaning that when you came to faith in Christ, when God turned you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, it was a resurrection of sorts in itself. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive together with Christ by faith. And so... There's always this reference to the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation of the sinner and the future resurrection of the sinners in Christ. That's why in Colossians, when Paul writes on this subject, as he does in every epistle, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Because you have been born again and because you will be resurrected, seek the things above. Your priorities have to have, be seen through a worldview lens that sees the risen Christ leading and ruling and reigning in your life now and into eternity. And there's a delight that comes from that because it's true. But notice what else the passage says in verse 12 down to verse 19. That Christ's resurrection, it, it proves a final resurrection to come. There will be more in this passage about this. But in these seven verses, note what it says realizing that there's some, just like in our day, who bought into the philosophy of the age that basically taught physical life was all there was. At death, many believed at this time and in our day as well, man simply goes away. He's no more. Paul says this is not so. And the resurrection of Christ proves that there will be a final resurrection to come. Verse 12 says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, as the 500 and others had seen and known, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Connected back to what he's saying, he's saying, be serious. I mean, there's over 500 witnesses to this, so you could keep saying it. Just because you keep saying it isn't true doesn't make it true. But I'll go with you a little bit on this, Paul says. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, here it is. And this is the key. This is the linchpin. If Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And it gets worse. Then those who also who have fallen asleep, those dear saints that have lost their life, maybe for their faith, they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. This could not be any clearer. And I'll be totally straight with you. I cannot for the life of me figure out, and I'll grant you maybe I'm totally delusional, but I cannot figure out for the life of me why anyone would ever stand in any pulpit anywhere and not believe in the resurrection. They ought not be there. And if you ever found out someone didn't believe in the pulpit, you should run as hard and fast away from that place as you could possibly because they're a liar and they're lying to you. Or worse, they're totally fooled themselves. And they're making something up to make everybody feel good, but in the end, it's just a long highway on into destruction. 
If the resurrection isn't true, I'm utterly wasting my time with you this morning. And you're wasting it being here, and you're pity to be here for it. It means everything. Christ's resurrection proves a final resurrection to come. If it's not true, then we are fools, utter fools. But notice what else the passage says, verse 20 and verse 23, down to 23. Christ's resurrection, we see in this little section, proves his acceptance by God as our representative and the surety for our resurrection. This is important. It says in verse 20, but, if in, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been. So that changes everything. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so those who have died, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection to come. Meaning that Jesus is the first one to put on the new body and many will follow. Think of first fruit in the picture. It's powerful. Think of your garden and those tomato plants. How long it takes to get them to the place where you're ready to pick one and slice it up and eat it. Ooh, that's making me hungry right there. Months. I mean, right now you've got to be tilling your garden, getting those tomatoes in, protecting them anytime it seems like a frost may come, you know, throwing yourself over the plant like a mother protecting their child. And then over a series of months, by somewhere in the July frame, t- time frame, you may get your first one. It takes so long, it seems. And then what happens if you've got a good garden? It starts busting loose with all sorts of red everywhere. Jesus is the first fruit of the harvest. And many, 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 many more come because he came first. He's the first fruits of the resurrection and the surety of our own resurrection. The fact that Jesus rises is important because it tells us that God the Father is pleased with the sacrifice of the Son and raises him. He does not let him decay. He raises the Holy One. And it proves to us that, yes, Jesus is our representative. He is our advocate. He is the one that God absolutely accepts. And this is, uh, you know, something that maybe escapes us at times, but maybe you can picture, as I've had happen in our house, where uh, one of the kids will uh, get in trouble for something, and the other one will come to the rescue and kind of speak up for a brother and say, you know, this is, you know, and try to almost take a little bit, deflect a little. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens sometimes, deflect a little. And it, my response is, are you done yet? Because you're not the representative. I need to talk to your brother, your brother who did the crime. Now, they know there's mutual crimes committed and there could be cover both ways so it's able to work. I get it. But in the end, I want to talk to your brother. So, so God says to us sinners, I can't talk to you. You can't represent yourself any longer in my presence. But the son, the perfect one, says, I will be the representative. It's, he dies in our stead, pays for our sin. And how do we know it's accepted? Because God says, I accept this and I raise him again from the dead. Jesus being raised is proof of our union with Jesus and our acceptance with the Father and ultimately is the surety of our own resurrection whereby Jesus is the first fruits of it. Look at verse 24 down to 28. The final resurrection, this final day, this glorious day that will come. The final resurrection will be the culmination of Christ's dominion now begun. Verse 24 says, Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain 
that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In a nutshell, what's being said here is when Jesus comes, he brings the kingdom with him. And he comes in from our study of Mark. We know he he barges in, if you will, goes into the territory of Satan, proclaims victory over Satan, and begins to gather to himself his people. He does the work of redemption, starts to build his church, and he's been building it ever since. And I know it's easy for us to get uh, to view the church in a microcosm sense or think in terms of the church is what we are. Well, thankfully, that's not the case. You see, God is building his church and has been from the time Jesus ushered in his kingdom and has continued to do so. And he draws more and more people to himself. And it's true that there are times of sickness for the church in various places. We may well be in one now here. Uh, but don't be fooled by that because God continues to subdue people to himself. It's not a military victory. It's a victory of hearts where he draws people to himself, gives them a new heart, and they're, now their passion is towards God. And he does this work just like he did it for us, and he does it all over the globe. And in various places right now, more and more people are coming to Christ. Yes, there's opposition. There always will be until Jesus returns. In this opposition, though, they may have all sorts of labels, but they're all the same religion. It's man. And then there's Christianity, which is the risen Christ reigning and ruling over the hearts of his people by his work on the cross, by the giving of his spirit, turning hearts to him. And he will keep doing this, keep doing this, keep doing this, till I don't know when, but at that time when he is done doing that work, then the end will come. Verse 24, and he'll deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And we're told that he is seated at the right hand of the Father now, subduing things to himself. Verse 27, or excuse me, verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So there will be this establishment, or you might say reestablishment, of the triune God as the sovereign over all. He's sovereign over all, but now in a special way when the church is presented uh, blameless to the Father, Jesus finishes, if you will, the full effects of his redemptive work in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit, united in a special way over all, forever. This is a culmination of Christ's dominion now begun. Look at verse 35 to 49. There are several verses that come between. Uh, I only skipped them for time's sake, but verse 29 down to verse 34 is basically a sidebar explanation that Paul gives. It, it probably was some specific question going on in Corinth. So I go to verse 35 to continue the thought process or the explanation Paul is giving. Because it's starting in verse 35 down to verse 49, we learn something that's pretty neat. It's interesting. It's a discussion that comes up enough, I think, I think we probably all wondered it. What will our resurrection bodies be like in eternity? Uh, you know, artwork has us floating around with, you know, wings and clouds and so forth. That's not even remotely close to biblical truth. Uh, God designed us as body-soul. That was the creation. That's the way we were always supposed to be, body-soul. But the fall came in and our soul died and body followed suit. Jesus renews our soul, but our body follows to death until it's redeemed and a new body is given. So we will have a body and a soul for eternity. We just don't know the particulars of what the body will be like. But here's what's great about it. Our resurrection bodies will be like our current bodies, but don't fret. Because I'd be fretting if that was the way it stays. Our resurrection bodies will be like our current bodies, but much, 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 much better. 
Look what the text says, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And what they must mean is, man, I've seen people die first century by the, the mouths of lions and other ways, torn asunder. They're asking, how are the dead raised? I mean, how is it going to be possible? With what kind of body did they come? You foolish person. And he's not calling them stupid. He's just saying they're naive in that they don't know this detail he's about to give. What you sow, a seed, does not come to life unless it dies. A seed, in a sense, goes into the ground and dies, and then it bursts forth into something much greater. That's the picture. Verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Imagine a, a, a corn kernel, and you put it in the ground, and it gets nasty looking while it's getting ready to germinate and pop out, and boom, it pops out, and then a huge stalk comes from with fruit on it, and it's an incredible difference between the picture of that mature stalk of corn from that kernel that went in the ground. Well, that body you have is, is you know, not the best looking. And, you know, over time, it's not getting any better. I'm sorry. I know. I mean, I see myself in the mirror every day. It gets, you know, worse. And uh, I remember saying to my doctor recently, will my knee ever look like it should? He said, no, but that has nothing to do with the surgery you had. <laughs> uh, you're almost 40, dude. That's what he's saying, okay? You're, it's not getting better from this point. And I get that, but that's being sown. And eventually my body will really be sown into the ground or wherever it is God has my final resting place for my physical existence. But from that, he will burst forth something far greater, so much greater you can't imagine. There's no way without seeing a cornstalk, you would know that a kernel means that. So there's no way I could describe to you what your body will be like. But I know what you have is going to be sown and it will be raised in glory. That's what it says. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another of the moon, another of the stars, for stars differ from star in, uh, star, uh, star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, degradable, can decay. What is raised is not able to be decayed or degraded, is imperishable. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. There's an order of things God has orchestrated. And then the spiritual. Verse 47, the first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust, all of us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. In Christ we are now that person, those people. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's one of the great mysteries of the future concerning our, what our bodies will be like. But we will not be disembodied spirits. We'll have a physical being. And it'll be much better than what it is. And just as Romans says, for if we have been united with him, Christ, in death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, is what Paul says in Romans. Where will we live? That's a whole other sermon. But basically, it appears that Scripture shows a restored or recreated earth for us to live in physical existence. Maybe something like before the fall happened, but better. 
What's the goal of all this? So what about these new resurrection bodies? By the way, Jesus is the prototype of the resurrection. He was recognizable, but yet different. He had physical properties where he ate. He cooked a meal for the apostles. Yet at the same time, he had attributes that are different than what we experience now, passing through even, it seems, a a wall. It'll be much better than you can imagine. Remember, just a little kernel, you can't see it be a cornstalk. Just a little kernel, we don't know the fullness of what will come. The resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of believers, the restoration of creation. What does it mean? Well, verse 50 to 57 tells us the final resurrection will be a magnificent display of the glory of God. That's the point of all of it. That's the point of creation. That's the point of redemption. That's the point of the future is the glory of God. And those united to Christ will experience great joy in that redemption as joint heirs together with Christ. Verse 50 says, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the death will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on the immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And this is when it all comes down to this finality. Death is swallowed up in victory. No more saying goodbye to relatives. No more sickness. No more funerals. No more wakes. No more songs of grief or mourning. All of that will be done because death will be dead. This meshes perfectly with what he told the Thessalonians. When he said, We declare to you by word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. I don't know if I'll be alive when Jesus comes back. Only a few people in the grand scheme of people have ever lived will be there alive, physically, at the resurrection. But it's going to be really cool for those people. I mean, they get to see the dead rise first and not be freaked out. And then they'll be transformed. But I'd be amiss if I went any further not mentioning something very important that I want you to hear. In the final resurrection, which will happen, every human being that's ever lived will rise again. Not every human being that's ever ever lived, when they rise again, will inherit eternal life. Many will inherit eternal death. That's the full story. That's the truth. You have to be in Christ. Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to a specific group of people who claim the name of Christ, and he's speaking in that sense. That's what he means when he says all. Jesus, though, was speaking more generally when he said in Matthew, speaking to people who were not believers, many of which were not, he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishment, there, by the way, there's no way, no gymnast, eternal punishments, what it says. It's what he meant. But to the righteous and to eternal life. And here's the thing. I don't know where you are in this, 
But the only way to be in the place of resurrection unto life is to be in Christ. It's not about how much church you attend, who your relatives are, whether you've been baptized, whether you've given enough to the church, you've done more good things than bad things. None of that matters. It's only are you in Christ. So this is not a hard message in the sense that uh, I'm trying to set you up for guilt so you go out and live better so you become one of the sheep. No, you can't do that. Uh, you, you can never be one of the sheep on the basis of your righteousness. None of us can only on the basis of faith in Christ alone for your substitution can you be right with God. And that's what determines whether on the final resurrection you have eternal life or eternal death. Verse 55, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Finally, all this kind of funnels down into verse 58. Verse 58, the reality of Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection gives our lives meaning and significance. See verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, Corinthians and Americans in this church and anywhere else that would be reading this, uh, despite all persecution you might receive, all pressing you might receive, all ostracizing you might undertake, whatever it is, whatever comes down upon you because of the truth of the resurrection. Remember, you live just a slight time on earth, 60, 70, 80, if by reason of strength, 80 years, maybe 90. It's a blip in the eternal scheme of things. And don't get stuck on that, the temporary. Don't get stuck on that which will be fading and rust corrodes and moths destroy. Get away from that and recognize that the resurrection means that whatever you undergo now, you can do it. Therefore, in light of what I've just said, you can endure, my beloved brothers, verse 58. So be steadfast, that is be sure, be stable, be secure in the truth of Christ and his resurrection and your coming resurrection. Immovable, don't be swayed. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. So what should you be about? Be about Christ, be about what's for him. And it could be whatever you're doing now, just do it for Christ. Knowing that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. So because of Christ's resurrection, we can be sure that our life focus must be Christ. That's where there is meaning. It is not God's intention, my friends, that Jesus be one of many important things in your life. It is not God's intention that you add Jesus to several components of your life. God did not send his son to suffer, to die, then raise him from the dead so that we could just have Jesus as our special helper or friend. God did not give his only begotten son and raise him from the dead so that we could add Jesus to the pantheon of our other earthly gods. God did not give the righteous one, the Lord Jesus, to pay for our sins and raise him from the dead so that we could keep chasing after temporary things that break down and destroy and degrade and build idols of self-tribute and tack on a little church with Jesus in it. God wants you to always abound in the work of the Lord. God wants Jesus to be your life. The resurrection of Christ impacts everything, and most importantly for you right now, that means the whole of your life and your existence. Much of what we do is labor in vain because it's not done for Christ. I'm not telling you to go change your vocation. I'm saying change your perspective with God's grace. Much of our effort, our labor, our expenditure of time is expended on ourselves rather than Christ and other people. Much of such labor or effort ends up in vain. But no labor for Christ is in vain. Nothing you do for Christ is in vain. No life lived for Jesus is in vain. I hope you see again through this chapter in 1 Corinthians that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical event that impacts 
everything that exists, giving our lives genuine meaning and significance, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have a living Savior and Shepherd, the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for leading us, for directing us, for giving our lives meaning. And Lord, please release us to the degree we have succumbed to the slavery of stuff and things and time and chasing after stuff that just doesn't matter. Please release us from this. I pray, God, that you give us eyes fixed upon that glorious day, a glorious day of transformation in the future, that it would make us immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that this labor is not in vain. We pray this, be so for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.